see news has got around that I was preaching today. Um, I, was, I was reminded, um, it reminds me of the old Jasper Carrot joke, which was about going to a Birmingham City game. I said, I said to the person next to me, Oi! Um, um, yeah, uh, I, I was actually reminded on Facebook this morning that I preached six years ago today, which was also a Sunday. Um, I just I had a Facebook comment that reminded me of that. Um, and I had a few encouraging comments after that talk, including one person who said, and I quote, that they were half listening. So, so that was nice. <laughs> they're saying for two-thirds today, shall we? Um, <coughs> aha, the PowerPoint's up. Good. So um, there was going to be a bit more nonsense, but let's skip over that and uh, get into it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I've called today's slide Minority Report, uh, which I will explain why in a, in a minute. Um, it's an old Tom Cruise film title, um, which I would recommend. Quite a good film. Um, so, every 10 years in the UK, they have a census. Um, for some reason, it's always when the year ends in one. So, they did, did one in 2021. That was the last one. Um, and in 2001, they asked a question about religion. They asked people to, um, what religion they were. Um, and it was the first time they'd asked that question since 1851. Um, so, these are the results from um, 2001. So... Uh, in 2001, nearly 72% of people um, said they were Christian. 7.7% um, uh, yeah, yeah, didn't answer the question. Um, now, you might notice those numbers don't add up to 100 because there were other options which I'll come on to. Um, so I'm sure you remember 20 years ago, or some of you remember, um, when 72% of the nation were um, Christian and the churches were bursting at the seams. Um, I, I don't remember that either. Now, now of course... The reason that it was so high is that there was a lot of cultural Christianity. A lot of people would tick a box on a form to say they were Christian. Um, they, they weren't like a committed Christian in the way that we would think of it. Um, uh, and one video I watched when researching this talk was that obviously that has to be an overestimate. No one accidentally says they're not a Christian, but lots of people might not, not accidentally, but a lot of people might think of themselves as Christian, um, but actually, you know, they're not in any practicing sense. Um, so in... 2011, it went to 59% Christian and 7.2% didn't answer. And in 2021, it went to 462 Christian and 6% didn't answer. Um, and this made the headlines last year. Um, they always release the census results a year after the actual census. Presumably, they take some time collating the data and doing an analysis. Um, but it made the headlines because it was the first time that statistically we were no longer a majority Christian country. Um, so, hence the title, Minority Report, because we are now in the minority. Now, of course, in reality, we have been for a long time, but statistically, that is now true. Um, so, I thought I'd think about that today. So, I thought I'd think about, you know, why has that happened, and what should our response be as Christians? Um, so, why has it happened? Well, um, is it because we've had a lot of immigration over the last 20 years? Well, um, that is a factor, and I now add in the columns for Muslim and other uh, other I've collated into one because there was a few like Sikh and so on. There was a few different options there, but they were quite all quite small. Um, so it is a small, it is a factor. 5.75% um, in 2001 identified with another religion. 9.1% in 2021. Um, so it, it is a factor, but it's not the biggest one. The biggest one is this column, which is none. It's people that are saying they don't have any religion at all. Um, that was 15%. Uh, in 2001, and it was just over 37% in 2021. So there's a couple of reasons for that. So that, that superficial or kind of cultural Christianity that I was talking about 
is dwindling. Um, so people who perhaps went to Sunday school as a child, or maybe they were confirmed if they've come through a C of E route, um, they might still think of themselves as Christian, but that is kind of uh, going away. And looking at data from the US, um, this is uh, another survey from 2021. Uh, so this is comparing people who say they don't have any particular religious affiliation across generations. So the silent generation um, is 18%, that's people born between 25 and 45, 1925, 1945, um, and it's uh, 48% uh, of Gen Z, which is 1996 onwards. Um, so the generations who had that kind of cultural Christianity um, are dying out, basically, and they're being replaced by generations who don't identify with any particular religion. So why are the younger generations rejecting Christianity? Well, I've got a few ideas about that, so I thought I would um, give you some thoughts on that and, and our, our responses to it. So, first thought, and I did a longer preach on this, so I'll, I'll repeat some of the things I said, but is it that science has replaced religion? Um, and in my preach, I said I, I see them as more complementary rather than uh, one replacing the other. Um, but we have a good understanding of how the universe works now. Um, historically, people have often used God as a kind of placeholder, if we don't understand something, well, that must be because God did it. So, for example, why was there an earthquake? Well, in the ancient times, they'd have said, well, that's because the gods are angry. Um, now we understand about tectonic plates and the mechanisms behind um, uh, th these things now. Um, now, natural disasters, they might be a result of the fall. Um, God does use, er uh, use earthquakes. Um, I've got a couple of examples of that from Scripture. So this is Acts 16, uh, 25 and 26. So... About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake, such, sorry, such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Uh, Matthew 28, 1 and 2. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. So there are times when God does cause and use earthquakes, but we understand the mechanisms between a lot of earthquakes now and many other natural disasters. Um, we shouldn't be using God as a placeholder for things that we don't understand. There's a God of the gaps argument that um, basically says, well, if there's something we don't understand, we'll just use God to, to kind of plug that gap. But the trouble with that is that as our scientific understanding increases, those gaps get smaller and God gets squeezed into increasingly small uh, kind of cracks in our understanding. Um, another thing I mentioned in that previous preach was that we used to believe we had quite a privileged position. We believed we were at the centre of the universe. Everything went around us. Uh, we believed we had a natural place, uh, sort of a special place um, in the universe. And science has removed that from us. Um, we now know that we're living on a planet that's just one planet going around just one star, uh, countless stars, countless planets. We now know about, um, I think it's over 5,000 exoplanets going around other stars now. Um, there's countless galaxies. So our understanding of our place in the universe has changed. Um, so it's understandable that young people might not buy into the Christian claim that we are special or significant. Um, but as I noted in that other talk, our significance doesn't come from the where we are. It doesn't come from our physical position. It comes from who we are. And who are we? Well, John 1, 12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave us the right to become children of God. 
We're the children of God. Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. So we're a creation and we're created by God. And it's not an impersonal God. Um, Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and we were known by God before we were born. And 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. Uh, he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we are loved by God, and he sent his son to pay the price for our sins. So that's where our significance comes from. Um, so that's a response to the thought that science might have replaced religion. That's a response for younger people, I guess. Um, second thought, are young people rejecting Christianity because of our relative affluence and comfort? Um, so John Lennon said this. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will pro be proved right. <laughs> now, he said that as part of the Bigger Than Jesus scandal, which you might be aware of uh, in the Beatles' time. Um, and as in the West, as we've seen, Christianity has shrunk. So was John right? Well, no. Christianity is not shrinking everywhere. In fact, in lots of regions like Latin America, Asia, and Africa, Christianity is actually growing quite rapidly. Um, and those are regions where there are a lot of developing nations. And affiliation with a religion is often correlated uh, with poverty. Now, this is a bit of a complicated slide, but I'll, I'll explain it. Basically, each of these balls represents a country, and the size of the ball represents the population of that country. Um, on the, on the x-axis, going left to right, you've got a measure of um, affluence. Basically, it's GDP per capita, so it's how, how rich is that nation. Um, and going up, we've got a um, percentage of people that um, have an association um, uh, with, a, with a, or they say that, I think, they, I think it's they say that religion is an important part of their life. Now, I know you can't read the details of that, and it doesn't matter. What matters is um, there are some outliers, like the USA is that big red, orangey red blob in the top right. So they're quite an affluent nation, but they have quite a high percentage of people identify or saying that they identify uh, with the religion or that it's an important part of their life. Um, but you'll see that most of the um, most of the countries are, are kind of stacked in the top left corner. So lots of people in countries that are very poor um, have quite a high percentage of people um, who, who are quite religious or they um, associate with religion. Um, so in the West, we are, relatively speaking, pretty comfortable, um, especially compared with uh, previous generations. We now have centrally heated homes, access to plenty of food, um, we have technologies that makes our lives much easier than they ever were before and more comfortable. Now, obviously, we're in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis, so some of that is, is getting worse at the moment. Um, but relative to many countries, we are still quite an affluent nation. Um, and actually, this is kind of where we are on that, on that graph. So we are fairly across to the right. So we are, uh, relatively speaking, a fairly affluent country, um, and we are not very religious as a country. So is that affluence... Um, a com uh, and, and comfort, a factor, uh, a decline in Christianity in the UK. So I was talking to Dennis, and <laughs> he, this is leading somewhere, but he asked me why dogs are so greedy. <laughs> it, it might not have been dogs, it was some animal, it could have been ducks, I can't remember, to be honest. But anyway, um, 
But the re- and I said to him, well, the reason is, and I, I didn't quite say it like this, but the reason they're so greedy is um, uh, because they're hu- yeah, they, they hunt, well, historically, they hunt for food. So they don't know where the next food meal's coming from. Now, of course, they're domesticated now, um, like we are, I guess. We, you know, our, our background is hunter-gatherer and then farming. Um, so now, the reason we're so, well, the reason so many people present preachers, including, are overweight, is that we are hardwired into our brain to, to eat when we can because we don't know where the next food is coming from. And we do know that now because we go down the shops. But historically, that is kind of our background. Um, so if that's your history, then you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to sort of want to eat when you can because that's kind of hardwired into your brain. Um, but if you're in a country that's still developing and you're still farming, uh, maybe you're hunting for food, if you, if, that, if you don't have a good day or if the crops fail, if you had ba- bad weather, you might actually starve. So it's hardwired into our brain that we eat while we can. Um, and so in developing nations, if people are more reliant on the weather um, for survival or they're reliable on a good hunt, uh, to, to eat, they might be, they think, well, they're more reliant on God because they don't have their needs met so easily. Um, so you might be aware of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, which is a psychological theory of uh, how people, you know, what people need. And it's kind of usually represented like this as a pyramid. So um, the most important things uh, are at the bottom, and they're kind of the higher things based on that. So physiological needs, um, that's things like um, we need food, we need water, we need shelter, um, and after that we need our safety needs met, we need personal security, we need resources. Um, these two bottom layers are, are more easily met in affluent nations. Um, most people, yeah, there are homeless people of course in the UK, but most people have shelter, most people have enough food to eat. Um, but those higher layers, the need for love and belonging, the need for esteem, the need for self-actualization, those are the needs that affluence can't meet. And young people still need those things. They're still crying out for those things. Um, and they're the needs that the church and ultimately God can meet. So where are the young people? Why are they not coming to us to meet those needs? Well, are there too many distractions? So I struggled with this sermon a bit. Uh, and it was a load of... I, I knew a long time ago that I thought this is what I wanted to talk about, but it was just a kind of load of uh, jumbled ideas in my head um, and I hope now I've now put it into something coherent. Um, but it was a challenge, and the reason it was a challenge, in, in no small part, was because there are so many distractions in life, and I'm very easily distracted. Um, so in the early days of mobile phones, uh, just as well they were becoming popular, I used to uh, rail against them. I'd, I would refuse to have a mobile phone because I was sick of people in supermarkets and on trains yelling into them and like, I'm on the train. It's like, all right. Um, and actually, I went into the office last Thursday, and I, I got on the train. Uh, our office is in Stratford now. I got, in the, got on the train in Stratford. Oh, no, sorry. No, this was at Seven Sisters coming. This was at Hackney Downs coming back from, coming back from Hackney Downs. And I got on the train there, and there was this kid playing sort of loud videos on his, um, on his phone. And so, like any British person, I just thought I'd stare at him. That'll show him. Um, <laughs> and strangely, that did not change his behavior. Um, and in the end, I got up and moved because I was just too annoyed by it. Um, and then I sat across another guy, and he was playing music. But he was playing music and had headphones in, to be fair. But he was playing it quite loudly, and I could hear the music. 
and I was just about to be annoyed, and then I realised he was playing worship music, and I thought, all right, let him off. It, <laughs> maybe he's evangelising. <laughs> um, but, I, but I used to get very annoyed about that, and I still am to an extent. Um, and, of course, now, having refused to have a mobile phone for years, I now have, like, a two. I've got, like, a mobile one, like a personal one and a business one. Um, and I sit there of an evening watching TV, playing like Candy Crush on my phone while kind of half watching. You know, I'm just even distracted by my own TV. It's ridiculous. Um, um, so I might have told you about my Sky Have Ruined Christmas theory. Um, and <laughs> I'm talking about the, the secular side of Christmas, which part of which was Christmas TV, right? It used to be this big thing, particularly when I was a kid. Um, and when I was a kid, Christmas was that's, that's when you got to see the Bond movie on TV. Because if you'd missed it at the cinema, there wasn't, I mean, VHS was just coming in when I was, you know, um, well, I think maybe 10 when I, we had VHS, maybe about that. But, you know, when I was young, it was, well, they were quite expensive, so uh, you couldn't easily buy VHS tapes. Um, so if you'd missed it at the cinema, your next chance to watch it was when it was on TV, which was usually around Christmas. And then Sky came along, and they just had movie channels, and they were just, you know, you could just watch it the next time it was on and now of course we have streaming services you can watch basically any film pretty much any time you want um, so with all these distractions yeah we have had instant access to any music we want any films we want um, this is why I'm going off on a tangent now but this is why gigs are so expensive now because you can get music for free but you can't have that live experience for free that's why you have to bands don't make money off their albums anymore they make money uh, with the gigs so that's why it costs so much to go and see the Rolling Stones for example who strangely sort of become their own tribute act somehow. Anyway. Um, um, yeah, anyway. Sorry, I'm distracting myself in the, during this sermon now. Um, um, so the point is there are lots of distractions in life these days. And how do we hear that still, small voice with all the noise? And the answer, of course, is to switch off those devices. And people do have social media fasts. They, even, you know, they have mobile phone fasts. Um, but younger people have grown up with these technologies. You know, I didn't grow up with mobile phones. I didn't grow up with streaming services. So maybe I'm a bit more used to that. Um, kids are just, that, that's how they've grown up. So are young people willing to do that? Um, now, we do need to embrace technology. We do need to use technology um, to reach people because that is how, how people think and it's the technologies they use. Uh, but we also have to try and spend time with people without those distractions. And at Firestorm, we try and have a a no mobile phones policy, and we try and get kids not to be on their mobile phones. We want them to engage with each, with each other, uh, and they want to engage. We want them to engage with us. Um, so, yeah, that's my thought about distractions. Um, so, finally, is it simply that as a society we have grown out of God? Well, actually, no, because here's some data from the Springtide Research Institute and the results of a survey they carried out last year. So it says. Of the nearly 10,000 Americans aged 13 to 25 surveyed, large majorities considered themselves to be religious, 68%, or spiritual, 77%. Young people today have a different understanding of what it means to be religious or spiritual. While previous generations were more enthusiastic about religious institutions and attending services, only 30% of our survey respondents are currently connected to a spiritual or religious community. So young people haven't rejected the idea of religion or spirituality. They've mostly rejected organized religion and the uh, mainstream denominations. One article I read when preparing for this suggested that in the West we've gone through three stages. And the, per the, the thing I read, they, he put quite specific years in between these three stages, which I don't really align with because I think that's 
is a bit too specific, and there's too many grey lines. But I basically agree with the, the gist of what he was saying, which is that we've gone from a, a positive world, where to be seen as a religious person, and one who exemplifies traditional Christian norms is a social positive. So Christian is a status enhancer. Uh, so we, we've had that back in the day. Then we went through a neutral world where Christianity was seen as neither socially uh, positive or negative. It was just like a, it was just neutral. It, it didn't have a dominant status in society, but it wasn't, you know, wasn't seen as a bad thing either. Um, to now, which is where we are now, into a negative world where being a Christian is now a social negative. Um, especially in high-status positions, Christianity in many ways is seen as undermining the social god, uh, so social good. Sorry, um, and you see that with sort of some quite high-profile politicians who are Christian, um, and they get really hammered about that. Um, about you know, do you believe this? Do you believe that? Uh, and some some of them, unfortunately, they kind of cave in, and they just to, just to stay popular, they they kind of um, they don't actually um, they don't stand their ground. Um, and I would suggest that the reason for that, or a reason for that, is that the traditional denominations haven't always behaved that well. Um, now, there's the obvious big stuff. You have like sexual abuse scandals. You have uh, tele-evangelists with their fi um, financial scandals. Um, but more generally, churches haven't always treated people very well. Um, now, I think I told this story during a previous preach, but when my dad was young, he used to like to go on uh, long bike rides um, in the country. And one time he went for a ride on a Sunday morning and he was going through a, a village um, and it was around the time that church was about to start and he, he found the village parish church um, and he decided to attend the service. Uh, and he was told, well, you can't come in here, you haven't got a tie on. Now, that was probably 70 years ago and I, I'm sure that wouldn't happen now. Um, but the churches haven't always been as welcoming as they should be. Um, and I think most of us got stories of how churches have hurt people we know or maybe even hurt us um, so this is a difficult one I'm, I'm just going to skirt over this a little bit because um, I think there's a whole other preaching here that I'm not um, I'm not sure I'm brave enough to, to tackle so not this year anyway um, but how do we engage with a generation who've grown up in an era which embraces gay rights and, and now trans rights if churches stand up for biblical principles then they get called bigoted they get accused of hate speech um, but any other response is at best like a messy compromise. Um, it's often been said in Christian circles that we should hate the sin but love the sinner. How do we do that when someone's sexual orientation is so wrapped up in their identity of who they are? Um, and I don't immediately know the answer to that, but I would suggest that the key thing is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men or, or angels, or of angels, but do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all, all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. However we engage with people it has to be in a loving way. Mark 12, 28-31 says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, nothing that Jesus had, noting, sorry, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 
The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And a quick reminder of who that covers. Um, um, John 13, uh, 34 to 35. That's, by the way, from a book that I've got, which is full of like funny um, illustrations to be used in sermons. I nearly used another one, but it was a bit complicated, so I didn't. But um, watch out for that in future preachers. Um, John 13, 34 to 35 says this. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And I think we are doing that here, certainly as a church. Um, Pete has previously shared how he saw something in this church, uh, a love that was different from what he saw outside in the world. Uh, and Abby and me have certainly felt that as you as a church community have helped us through some of our struggles. Um, so I think, you know, let's keep doing that. Um, and some encouragement about that, because while the traditional denominations have been shrinking, some of the new ones, including Elim, uh, are actually growing. So this is a chart uh, per denomination, Elim, I've marked in green. Um, so, so I think the Elim and other, other newer denominations actually, they, they, they have actually kind of cracked this problem of societal decline. Um, this is a quote from Stuart Blount, who is the director of ministry for Elim. He said, um, we have been persuaded that people can be self-reliant. And while this is helpful, we all need support sometimes and may look to an external source of hope outside ourselves. As a Pentecostal movement, we express this hope with a vibrancy that comes from the Spirit. It is God's presence in our church communities that enables us to thrive during seasons of personal challenge. He also empowers us to share our stories of hope with those who don't know Christ. This is ultimately the heart of mission. Many of our churches engage in their communities through initiatives like food banks, lunch clubs for the elderly, and youth, group, youth clubs. The passion and commitment to our communities is born out of a conviction that God is real and deeply interested in every part of our lives, not just Sunday worship, and we aim to bring hope amid the sometimes harsh realities of life. And I think this is why a traditional, or a reason that traditional churches are failing, um, as well as becoming increasingly irre irrelevant, they have this attractional model where they expect people to come to them. Churches need to be more outward-looking, uh, thinking about how we meet people um, where they are. And I know that you know, we do food boxes, and I think things like that are, are great initiatives of how can we help people, how can we, especially during a cost of living crisis, how do we, um, how do we bless people in our community? Um, I also think, and there's a whole other sermon in here as well, which I think Ken would be much better place to tackle than me, but I also think the traditional church has neglected, completely ignored, or even denied the way the Holy Spirit moves and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, so I think that's another challenge for the more traditional um, churches. So I've talked about how we need to love people. We also need to be displaying fruit in our lives. Galatians 5, 9 to 13 says this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sorry, Galatians 5, 9, yeah, Galatians 5, 19 to 23. Sorry. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no such law. 
And I watched a video again when I was researching this, uh, and the person in the rating, he went through that list, and after each item, he showed a clip of a Christian not really acting that way. Um, and if people aren't seeing those things in our lives, then why, why are they going to engage with us? Um, we have to be making sure that we're displaying that fruit. Um, Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16 says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. So we need to, loving peop- we need to be loving people. We need to be showing people fruit. And thirdly, we need to be salt and light. Matthew 5, 13 to 16 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So salt adds flavour to food. Light illuminates a dark room. They affect the things they're in. We need to be affecting society, not being affected or influenced by it. Um, here's, here's from an art, this is from an article um, called How the Church Can Respond to a post, Post-Christian Culture. One popular response to post-Christian culture, Christian culture is in many ways the most attractive, the most widespread, and the scariest. It is to follow the trends, to consume culture. Wherever culture and historical Christian teaching disagree, the latter is accommodated to the former. After all, if we want to stay relevant in a post-Christian age, then some of the Christian stuff will have to go, right? When the voice of a culture and not the word of Christ is what governs the church, then it is no longer the church. It's just a social club of people desperately trying to keep up with the cultural fashion. Ironically, that's the quickest way to close your church. Why would anyone bother coming to a church that is indistinguishable from anything else? So some final encouragement. It can be dispiriting living in an increasingly secular world. But Jesus didn't promise that our walk with him would be easy. Quite the contrary. He said in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that, you, so that in me you, you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But as I'm sure you know, the verse concludes, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So we do win, or rather Jesus wins. I remember years ago I was at a... Um, it was about a month after I got married, and Abby and me had a meeting with our photographer, um, and I, I got a mate who used to keep me updated with Arsenal scores, and Arsenal were playing Reading away in the League Cup, uh, and we contrived to go about 4-0 down within about 30 minutes, um, and I had an, a series of increasingly sweary texts from this friend who was telling me about like the, the calamity that was unfolding just before... Um, half time we got a goal back and I jokingly said in, you know, he told me about it and I jokingly said well, the comeback's on then um, and we were driving home from this appointment with a photographer and he texted me we, we got to 4-2 and then just as we were pulling up in about the 90th minute Arsenal made it 4-3 and uh, I scurried upstairs because I had the sports channels at the time uh, and I, I got upstairs in time um, to see this ridiculous like last second last you know like in the last minute of injury time Arsenal scored 4-4 went into extra time, it was a cup game. Um, Arsenal won 5-7, it was, it was a ludicrous game. Um, the point is, my friend had a very stressful evening because it just seemed like it was all, everything was lost, there was no, there was no chance. You, I could watch the highlights of that game now, knowing the final score. 
and it changes your perception of how you watch that. Um, and this should change our perception. Um, yeah, Jesus wins. That's, that's the end result. Um, so it might not seem like it right now. We might be 4-0 down. Um, but maybe we just got a goal back with Eden. I don't know. Um, but, you know, we know what the end result is going to be. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, 9 to 11 says this. So, so I know you love it when I talk about football, so I thought I'd add that just for you. <laughs> um, Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says, uh, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that, in the, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So till that happens, let's sow seeds wherever we go. Let's be salt and light in our society and to the people we encounter. Let's work on our relationship with God so that people will see fruit in our lives. And let's love and accept people in a way that the world doesn't. Um, And I'm just going to finish with Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40. Uh, This is from the, the sheep and the goats passage. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothes you, clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me.